How many of y'all in here, and I won't raise hands, how many of y'all in here have almost died before? Like a lot of people, right? A lot of us have almost died. How many of y'all have almost died more than once? Okay. How many of y'all have almost died more than twice? Oh, I need to stay over here then. How many of y'all have almost died more than three times? All right, there's two of us. We're special. I have almost died like five or six times. And by almost died, I mean like legit almost died. It actually started before I was even born. Um, I was born in 1972. My wife likes to always remind me that's the early 70s. That means something to to her. Um, But back then, you know, steering wheels were made out of stainless steel and some sort of like moon plastic. Like steering wheels were hard. And my mom had a horrible accident when she was very pregnant with me and slammed her stomach up against the steering wheel. And they rushed her to the hospital to see if I was going to make it. And here I am. I got some memory problems, but outside of that, I'm, I'm good, right? Not once, but twice, especially if you're from the South, you'll appreciate this. There's nothing better than a magnolia tree for climbing. Am I right? Best climbing tree in the world, magnolia trees. Not just once, but twice, I fell on the top of a magnolia tree that was probably 30 feet tall, hitting every limb on the way down before I splatted on the ground. And maybe the most vivid of all of them, the one I remember the most, I don't know, eight, ten years old, somewhere in there, we went canoeing, and we had gotten out of our canoes, and we were going to go around this kind of S-curve in the river. We were going to float on our boat cushions or life vest or something like that. You park the canoe, you get out, and you float around this curve on the river that was a lot of fun. Well, one of the reasons the current was so strong was this big tree on the bank had fallen over, and the root ball was sticking up. And the water would rush up against the root ball and rush around it. Well, I wasn't strong enough to fight the current, and my dad was screaming, kick, 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 and the current just pushed me right into the root ball, and I remember being face into it, and the root ball was huge. It was three or four times taller than I was, and water was rushing over my head, and then everything went black, not because I passed out, but because it pushed me under the root ball, which pushed me technically underground. There was no sunlight down there. And just out of desperation, I shot my hand up as high as I could. And I think like this much of my hand came out of the water. And as my dad was floating by, he grabbed my hand and pulled me out of the water. And then another time, this is going to age me again as much as a, this is a young congregation. How many of y'all remember the band Jodeci? Oh, Lord. There we go. We got one. How many of y'all remember MC Hammer? So, MC Hammer was playing in Memphis, which is where I was from, and I was driving to work. And the band manager for Jodeci, who was the opening band, Jodeci was a B-minus grade R&B band, um, opening up for MC Hammer. Their band manager broadsided me and flipped my car over in a very busy, very crowded intersection, and miraculously, nobody hit me. I'm in the middle of a very busy street, upside down in my car, and and I survived. Now, I tell you all that story, not to brag about the fact that I'm here, which, by the way, is amazing. You can come touch me afterwards if you'd like. I don't know what it'll get you, but it'll do something. Touch appropriate, though. Um, So... (laughs) Prayer servant, got to keep the prayer servant training thing going, right? You got to ask first, touch shoulders. Um, 
that's the point where I jumped into Joseph's story. I use that story to tell you guys something, to invite you to jump into the story. One of the things we do in the American church that just has always made me sad, and I went to seminary to learn how to do the opposite of about what I'm fixing to tell y'all, is we go to the Bible so often for information. The Bible's a story. That's why Sean T. just read the story from the Children's Storybook Bible. The Bible's 75% narrative. And so when we find ourselves in the story, when we find a place we can get in, when we hook ourselves into the story, that gives us an ability to really wrestle with the reality of what these people whose lives are recorded and their journey of faith looked like. The story of Joseph is 13 chapters, uh, Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. It's 13 chapters in the Bible. That's not that long of a section of Scripture to record an entire life. And it's not that long of a section of Scripture to record some things that were very significant that happened. But Joseph almost died multiple times. And I can kind of relate to that. You know, that, that was a point where I'd jump into his story. He was hated by his brothers and they wanted to kill him. And it was only Reuben who saved Joseph's life. Joseph should have, could have, would have died. Um, a lot of scholars would tell you that before he ended up at Potiphar's house, he was probably sold three to four times. Well, in slave trade, the more frequently you're traded hands, the more frequently that you move from owner to owner, the likelihood goes up of your being killed. And then he was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife that because this is family Sunday, we'll spare you the details, but we know the story. And Joseph was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. And what he was accused of is something that, that would have carried the penalty of death. But he wasn't killed. And so it made me begin to wonder and ask questions. You know, why am I here is the universal question. Everybody asks that, why am I here? But when I look back and realize how many times I've almost died, or we look at Joseph's story, and we see how many times Joseph almost died, and then because we know the end of the story, we can see that God meant something really good out of Joseph's life. But that got me into his story to even asking more questions. And so my invitation for you guys today is for y'all to join me at any point jumping into the story. Because maybe part of your story isn't that you've almost died a ridiculous number of times. I'm not even a klutz, by the way. These are things that, like, well, fell the tree, but those things happen to me. It, it's more that you get to jump in at some point where maybe you've been through a long period where you don't know what God's doing. Right? Or maybe your jumping in point is you were wrongly accused of something that had a deep impact on your life and your family. The other thing I want us to do as we do that is we're going to look at Joseph's story or Joseph's early life. We're going to parallel it to an actual live person so that we can visually look and see what does it look like for time to pass. What was Joseph doing for 13 years? Between the age of 17 and 30, Joseph was captive. That's a long time, 13 years. <clears throat> Scholars aren't 100% sure how long he was in prison. We know it was a minimum of two, because when he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer and the baker, the Bible talks about there was two years between that dream interpretation and Pharaoh calling him for his dream interpretation. So it's a minimum of two 
And in the two-year span, all we really know is that Joseph impressed the jailer and he interpreted two dreams. But there's got to be more than that, right? And the 11-ish years that he was in Potiphar's house, we don't know what he did other than run from Potiphar's wife and be so good at his job that Potiphar didn't have anything to worry about. There's got to be more than that, right? Because we're trying to stand up here and tell you that Joseph lived a life of faithfulness. And we know that he did because we see what happened after Joseph got out of prison. And so at some point along the way, I'm inviting us all to jump into the story and find our place and see what God is doing. One of the ways we're going to do that is I want us to look very practically at one of the handsomest men I've ever met in my entire life. This is John Longshore, guys. Handsomeness, I think, may have showed up a little bit after this photo. This was pre-handsome. But this is when John graduated from high school. Now, a lot of y'all know John Longshore. He's the husband of Jess Longshore, who's our pastor over student ministries. He's the father of Mills and Maggie, an all-around great guy. Um, He kind of reminds me of Joseph in a lot of ways, not just because of the age bracket, but Joseph really got after it. Because how do you impress your captor so much that he puts you in charge of his house? How do you impress a jailer so much that they let you run the jail? How do you impress Pharaoh so much that you get to become number two in what was the world power at the time? That picture does not have the answers, but that's the starting point. (laughs) That's about how old Joseph was when he got sold by his brothers. Now, a lot of people... You know, we have those quotes in our uh, yearbooks. Those quotes are like all the dreams and visions we're going to have, right? Or people try to be clever and, and say things that are confusing. But it's, you know, when you're graduating high school, the valedictorian speech is all about the world you're going to conquer. That's about the time that Joseph's life went from wide open to shut. That's a lot of dreams that got squashed, right? He was captive. If we could show the next picture... This is John graduating from college, I believe. What? And at this point, John is what, 22, I think? 22? Joseph would have missed a life event like this. He would have already been in prison for, I mean, he would have already been serving Potiphar now for four or five years. If we can show the next slide. And there's Jess. This is John and Jess on their first date. Yeah, there we are. This is John and Jess on their first date. Joseph would have missed out on something like this. John was, I think, 24 when this took place. And then we got our next slide. There's the wedding. Look how, look how fake excited everybody is. I'm guessing the first date must have gone really well because we have a wedding. I'm also, well, I don't want to assume too much. I'm assuming there was more dates between the first one and this one. Yeah, good. So, this is life that they started to get to build with each other. At this point, John was 26. If you have imprisonment starting at 17, 26, nine years later, he's still serving in Potiphar's house. Now, he was impressively serving and apparently running away from Potiphar's wife. But look at the pieces of life 
that Joseph was missing out on that seemed very normative to us. It seemed very normal for us. We've got our next slide, please. There we go. That's Mills. That's you, Mills. You dig him right. That's awesome. What an exciting moment. And at this point in Joseph's life, this might have been about the age he was when he was wrongly accused and got thrown into prison. John had a good job. They bought a house. He has his first child. And this is about the age that Joseph would have been wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison. I think we got another slide. And there we go. Maggie, there's you. Mills, there's the whole family. House number two. I need you for here second service too, Mills. Don't go anywhere, bud. <laughs> Stick with me, man. <laughs> two kids, second house, job's going amazing. Last slide, please. Look at this. Principal and VP of innovation. I don't even know what that means. I would say that basically makes that guy the head cheese of something, right? I mean, look at him. I also chose a terrible example because look at that hair. Just so y'all know, had we done this with me, the only picture where I would have had hair would have been my senior picture in high school. Everything else, gone. College, gone. Now, gone. But this is a recent picture. John's job, he's on an upward climb. This would have been about the age that Joseph would have been on the other side of interpreting Pharaoh's dream and coming out and leading a nation. I'm impressed that John's the VP of innovation, whatever that is. And Joseph was number two in world power. Now, how did all that happen? Well, we, we would contend what we've been saying is that's happening through faithfulness. But what does that look like? Kids, how many of y'all have seen the movie Meet the Robinsons? Kids, a lot of y'all seen that? The slogan of that movie is what? Keep moving forward, right? Keep moving forward is the slogan of that movie. And the point is this kid keeps coming up against obstacles and he wants to invent all these really cool things. And the slogan that he comes up with to keep himself motivated is keep moving forward. Well, one of the things we see in Joseph's life is his ability to keep moving forward. His ability to persevere. You know, James 1, if we have James 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let perseverance finish its work. What the heck does that mean? I don't think it means it ends quickly. There's nothing wrong with looking at the Joseph story and celebrating prison to palace. But there's so much more faithfulness after he became the prince. Because he continued. You know, I think Joseph even had he chosen out of what Pharaoh had assigned him to do, he wouldn't have miraculously been a free man. Pharaoh probably would have put him back in prison. Or maybe even killed him for refusing his options. So Joseph, even in that, that he was number two, he wasn't technically free. 
he was still bound by circumstances. He was still bound by things. He wasn't free to do all the things that we just got to see in John Longshore's life. But he persevered nonetheless. And we know that he was a get-after-it guy. We know that he kept moving forward because we know that in Potiphar's house, Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything while Joseph was there. And when he was in the jail, when he was in prison, it said the, the prison guard didn't have to worry about anything while Joseph was there. But I want us to continue on in the story and look at what Joseph did even after he came out because it's so significant. And so one of the jumping on points for us that's going to be really interesting is to look at Genesis 45, 5 through 8. You know, one of the ways that's really practical for us to to see how willing and able Joseph was to get after it was when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. This is in Genesis 41. Don't worry about going there right now. Um, He had a plan. He didn't just tell Pharaoh what the dream meant. He had a plan for how to execute it. And Pharaoh invited him to take hold and lead that plan. And that plan was, there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. When I was talking to John about this sermon, John being a businessman, I was asking him a lot of questions about how business works. And one of the things that he was telling me was, technically on paper, what Joseph did makes no sense in the business world. It's a terrible business plan. Most companies, especially companies with investors, aren't in the business of during growth and plenty of saving for a bad season. They're in the place of expansion. But the Bible tells us that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And this thing that God led Joseph into, see, Joseph believed in the prophetic. He lived prophetically into the dream he interpreted for Pharaoh. And I would contend a lot of his faithfulness actually was him being faithful through even the dream of the coat when he was a kid and believing that God was going to do what he was going to do. So the point came when his brothers knelt before him and worshipped before him because they didn't know who he was, but they needed him. They needed Egypt to help feed them. Joseph was about 39. They came back a second time when he was 41. That was the culmination of his first promise. He could have shut it down, but he didn't. Why didn't he shut it down? Because if the faithfulness stops, so does the fruit. And he recognized that God meant it for good, even though his brothers meant it for evil. But for the goodness of God and the fruit of that to go forward, Joseph had to keep going forward. Joseph had to keep moving forward. He had to keep persevering. So the challenge for us today as we enter this story somewhere is for us to persevere because something good might happen. And I think sometimes we miss things like that when we don't look at the Bible as true story and get in and figure out. 13 years, we got to see through a series of slides how long that was, how much life John Longshore has lived that Joseph missed out on. And it puts in perspective. Think back on your own life. What were you doing 13 years ago? If you're younger than that, there's a lot of younger people in here today. Think about what you want to do when you get out of school. But we do know that Joseph persevered. And so let's jump into our scripture. Let's look at uh, Genesis 45. I think the passage is 5 through 8. 
He says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead. For two years now there's been a famine in the land and for the next five there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save our lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Abraham. He, he, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And so Joseph's recognition is a huge deal. But he kept moving forward. Our next passage, as we let Scripture draw us deeper into the story, we're going to look at Genesis 46. And Genesis 46, he says, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. And when Pharaoh calls you in and says, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended flocks. And you can go ahead and skip to the next. Oh, no, sorry. So he says, then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. The reason I want us to look at this passage is, Joseph was thinking enough about moving forward to call in a favor to Pharaoh because he knew that the Egyptians didn't really have any, any value for shepherds, and that's who Joseph's family was. And because he had gained favor, he cashed in a little of that equity by calling in a favor to Pharaoh for the sake of his family. And so Joseph's spiritual transformation wasn't just for his own salvation. It wasn't just for his own safety. It wasn't just for the, his own skin. But when he said God did this so that he could save a people, Joseph got active about doing what it took to save a people. He kept pushing forward and moving forward. And so he called in a favor to Pharaoh. And he did it because that matters. He did it because moving forward matters. He could have shut down, but that would have cost his family. The Egyptians didn't have a lot of space for servants like, or uh, shepherds. And that would have been really difficult for them. Next, I want us to look at one of the most interesting things to me in chapter 47, verses 14 through 24. And I don't think we'll read all of it just for the sake of time. But I do want to look at some of it. So 47, 14 says, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. All the money. So that means in this time when they were in decline, when it was famine time, Joseph had collected all the money of those who were coming in to buy grain. Now remember I told you that John had kind of given me a, a heads up that this was a bad business model. Most businesses grow, grow, grow during periods of, of favor, growth, and wealth. And then during times of decline, they just try to shrink as little as possible so that when everything rebounds, they're in a position to jump back up. But look at how Joseph flipped it because he followed God's lead and because he believed in the promises of what God was doing. During the time of a lot, he saved. And now here during this famine, Joseph was divvying out grain for money. But Joseph got innovative. He wasn't just selling grain for money. Because if we follow this passage, we see that the next verse says, when the money was gone... They came to us and said, give us food. Why should we die? So Joseph said, bring your livestock. 
So now they're trading their livestock for grain. Right? He's being innovative. In this point, you're about to see how Joseph is taking for Pharaoh. And in a time where everything's at its worst, Joseph's increasing Pharaoh's position. Because that was his assignment. He was innovative at his assignment. When the livestock ran out, we can keep flipping through passages, but it doesn't matter. When, when livestock ran out, Joseph traded it for land. And then the people worked in servitude for Pharaoh. And by the time the famine was over, the entire people group in Egypt had given all their land, all their livestock, and now their servitude to Pharaoh. And so at the end of a seven-year famine, Pharaoh was wealthier than he had ever been, had a larger livestock herd than he had ever had, owned more property than he'd ever had, had more money than he'd ever had, and now had a workforce. And Joseph was innovative by getting after it for the sake of his assignment, but also for the sake of what he knew God was doing to save a people. Then I want us to look next as we move deeper into the story. Let's look at 50, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. So this is sometime later. The famine's over. Joseph's family's moved in. He called in the, fam- the favor. They're all present. They're living there. They're growing. They're raising their crops. They're raising their herds. And Jacob, their dad, dies. It's interesting to me that I think this proves that the brothers may not have actually believed Joseph when he said they were forgiven at the front end. Because it says here, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? And he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. He called in a favor. He brought him over. He's taking care of him. He gave him Goshen, which was a prime piece of property. But once dad dies, they're worried. Well, 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 he's fixing to come back and get us. But we see here, if we keep going to the next verse. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father let these instructions before he died. They're They're reminding him of what promises were. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. So now please forgive the sins of your servants for the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. So his heart was still soft for his brothers. I would contend it was probably softer. Because Joseph was still on the incline. He was still on a growth pattern. And we see that not just by what he was able to accomplish, but because of what he recognized and how he kept moving forward even after his official promise, his first promise came to pass. And so we go down, he says, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is the second time. That's the second recognition. He's reminding them again. He'd already recognized it previously. So this isn't that first time. So then, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's faithfulness was even consistent. And he continued to dole out forgiveness. His brothers didn't even believe. So Joseph was kind enough to remind them. And I really do believe that he wasn't frustrated because he said he wept and he reminded them and spoke kindly. He wasn't angry that they brought that back up. He wanted to remind them how much he loved them. He wanted to remind them what God was doing. So he promised to take care of them because he understood the promise of God. He understood it really deeply. 
And then finally, as we look at this, we see that Joseph's faithfulness really was deeply committed. Because in chapter 50, verses 24 and 25, or 25 is fine. Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come back to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph said that because he believed in the promise of God for a promised land. And even though they were in a foreign land, Joseph had seen this faithfulness of God work out, but Joseph had responded with his own faithfulness. He had responded by keep going forward. He had responded by perseverance. Makes me wonder sometimes even if James, when he wrote that passage in his letter, if he was thinking about Joseph a little bit. It's such a good story of what perseverance looks like. And all of us have moments where perseverance is really tough. Perseverance by nature is tough. All of us have moments where perseverance is a lot longer than we want it to be. But James reminds us and asks us to let perseverance work itself out so that we might lack nothing. In that time where we're waiting, in that time where we're fighting, let me encourage us to operate from a place of gratitude. We talk all the time about how Paul sang songs and hymns in prison, right? We talk about how Saul or Paul was in prison and was singing praise and worship songs. And I, I really believe deep down, having been in really tough spots myself, that Paul did that because he believed in it, but I don't know that the joy was on the front end. I think Paul started singing worship songs and praise songs and thankfulness to God so that his heart would be moved into a position to line up with what God was doing. There's an anonymous 14th century mystic who's written a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. And one of the things that he says in that book is persevere until you find the joy in it. If worship's going to be a weapon, then it's worth using. If gratitude's going to be a weapon, then it's worth using. And so even when we don't feel grateful, even when we don't feel thankful, even when we don't feel like praising, those are the moments where we have to dig in and, and do that the most. I've been in a really tough season lately with the Lord, just wrestling through some things and had some really significant moments where things have been coming at me. And I found myself even this week walking around a store just spontaneously singing praise songs and thoughts that came into my head and my heart. And what those things did was bring peace. They brought a sustainability to my day. But they had more than that. They had a fruit on them. And that fruit was that as my day went on, my peace increased. And I wasn't so focused on what was going wrong. But I was able to keep moving forward. And so in close, I want us to... Uh, have the band come back up and we're going to sing a little bit of thankfulness. Um, we're going to sing some songs and we're going to thank God for whatever's going on in our lives. And so our altar call today, Henry, if you want to go ahead and grab that box and bring it up, buddy. If there's prayer servants in the room, you can come on up. Henry will give you a lanyard. <clears throat> you can just open up, buddy, and if anybody comes up, hand him a purple lanyard. Tennyson's going to sing some songs of thankfulness and gratitude. 
I want us to, if you're a prayer servant, come on forward, please. I want y'all to either come worship or come have somebody pray with you. But I want us to start finding out where we are in the story of Joseph, where we feel stuck, whether we feel uncertain, whether we're in the beginning, whether we're in the end, it doesn't matter. But to find our place where we get to be thankful and operate in gratitude and let that thing be the fuel, let that thing be the impetus to move us into a place of continuing to follow what God's doing in our lives. So that if we persevere, we might be made complete, believing that if we persevere, something good might happen. And so as Tennyson begins to play and sing, I just invite you to come up. You can come up and sing. You can come up and get prayer. But I just want to close out the service this way. So just join me by standing, please. Lord, wherever we are, we know that you are with us. Father, wherever we are, we know that you are in control. Even if it doesn't feel that way, we relinquish that to you consciously and tell you that we will thank you and glorify you and praise your name. And so, Father, receive our praise. Let us all have our own experience of being filled by you and find your peace and love.